Lord, we're grateful that we can gather as your family this day and look at this well-familiar story. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that its familiarity would, would not uh, cloud our vision of what you would have to speak to us. I ask, Lord, that you would take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your will for our lives. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, during this season of Advent, for the first couple of weeks, in the, at least, we're, we're in Mark's gospel. Last week, the focus was on the return of Jesus. This week, we go to the beginning of Mark. And I don't know if you knew this, but Mark is the first gospel book in our Bible. It was the one that's credited to being written first, approximately 48 A.D., um, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being Gospels, which means good news, in the ancient world were seen as uh, news flashes. It's the best modern phrase I can have. News flash. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's because it's good news. It was to be proclaimed. And so, during the first century, at least for those first 15 years or so before Mark began to write, there were so many eyewitnesses, and being an oral culture, if someone came along and started to teach a false Jesus, saying something like, uh, Jesus the Messiah hopped into his VW microbus, followed Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead all over the Judean wilderness, where he stopped at his various things and did great movements of healing. Somebody would have said, no, I was alive, I saw it, it didn't happen that way. So those things didn't happen. And so around 15 years later, Mark, as the eyewitnesses were beginning to die, he started to write these things down, along with Matthew, Luke, and John. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15, you might remember, where he says, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, and Peter saw him, and so-and-so saw him, and so-and-so saw him, and as a matter of fact, 500 people saw him at once. If you don't believe me, go ask them. All right? And why is he saying that? Because you couldn't manufacture Jesus. They wouldn't allow it. (laughs) And because of that, Because the eyewitnesses were starting to die, the gospel writers started to write. And what you have here is the real Jesus in Mark. The pure, unfiltered Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we need this so desperately today, and here's why. Ten years ago... When I got here, I would be out in the community talking to, you know, my boys' hockey parents because they were playing hockey at Avon Lake and Zach was playing baseball at Avon Lake. And I talked to these various people. And there really was no interest in Jesus, really. There really wasn't much at all. They were either Catholic or, oh, Jesus, I've been there, I've done that. I've I've moved beyond it. I know all that, right? That's not the case today. Today there is a great interest in spirituality, in Jesus. It's really changed, and I know that because Monday night, I mean, I got peppered with questions just sitting at the bar at Jake's. 
It was amazing. I'm like, this has never happened, Lord. But I was thankful for it. But there is an interest in him. The problem with our culture is they want Jesus on their own terms. (laughs) And yet, as I ask them, but if you get a Jesus that's shaped by you, a Jesus who will never push back on you, that's not the type of Jesus that will ever really affect your life. All you're doing is worshiping a Jesus of your own creation, which is you. In Jesus form. But if you want transformation, and God wants transformation for all his people, if you want the real Jesus, you don't have to go far. You get it right in Mark. So I encourage you to open up with me uh, to Mark's gospel, because it is the pure, unfiltered Jesus. Kind of sounds like a Coors commercial, doesn't it? You know, Uh, It's in the back of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Because Mark jumps right in, unlike Matthew, who was an accountant, who was a bookkeeper. Those of you with bookkeeping experience know you're detailed people, right? So you get all the details. So he lays out all the genealogy. You know, Luke, being a doctor and educated, writes in very educated Greek. He writes, It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have known the certainty of the things you've been taught. Highly educated language, right? John is the big picture guy. You know, just just almost poetically. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark is a P.E. major. (laughs) And he just goes, here it is! Take it or leave it, and boom, goes right for it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because what Mark wants to do for us is give us the pure, unfiltered Jesus. And because we're in a midst of a culture that desperately needs the real Jesus, and because this is what the book that is written in is giving us this Advent, it's the Jesus who can change our lives, can affect us, can make a difference in us. Because, you know, he starts off saying the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we we look at the name Jesus Christ as a synonym, right? They're not. Jesus was a very common name in first century Judaism. Lots of Yeshua's out there. Kind of like John Smith in American culture. You know, no big deal. Lots of Jesus's because that was his name. But not Christ. The Greek word Christos means the anointed king. This is the Messiah. And so what's happening here is Mark is saying right off the bat, meet Jesus the king. And he doesn't stop there. He says, the son of God. Meaning God incarnate. And what we see in this passage are three things which I think we can take away here today. Number one, who he is. Number two, how we can meet him. And three, where is he going? All right. Who he is, how do we meet him, and where is he going? And Mark doesn't mince words. I'm continuing with verse two and three. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. A first century reader would have read that, and that would have been a 
bombshell to them. They would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, 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 wait. You're bringing out the Babe Ruth of prophets. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40, who is saying that someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory, and a messenger will call out and prepare the way before him. That's what Isaiah is saying, and Mark identifies the messenger as John the Baptist, as the one who's identifying the coming of Jesus. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about this? Well, here's the big deal about this, is what Mark is saying in this is that Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the creator and God of the universe, rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you realize what a bombshell, not only it was it was then, but it is today for us. It's huge. First thing this tells us, it tells us basically three great truths for us in this bombshell announcement that Mark is doing for us. It tells us first, it gets rid of all the worldly wisdom and philosophy that you ever learned. All of it. You know, you took philosophy 101, Aristotle and Plato, right? All right? The real, the ideal, right? Remember that? Postmodernism, modernism, which is it all? Mark says, you don't have to worry about that all anymore. The ideal has become real. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The incomprehensible is someone you can hug. That's what he's saying here. Unlike Buddhism, unlike Hinduism, that say God is the divine spark in all of us, and therefore the incarnation of the divine into the human is happening all the time and it's just constant. Well, the Jews and the Muslims would say, no, 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 no. God is so transcendent that the incarnation of the divine is utterly impossible. Mark comes along and says, au contraire. Christianity says God is so transcendent that the incarnation is certainly not constant. But God is so loving and so intent on our salvation that he did break through the concrete wall between the ideal and the real once incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. God becoming human in Jesus Christ is the universe changing, history altering, worldview shattering, life transforming event that sets Christianity off from any other worldview. And you can tell Plato and Aristotle, no thanks. This is all I need to really, truly know. Now, if you take this to your neighbors, or maybe even perhaps some of you are going, yeah, yeah I hear what you're saying, Gene. I still don't buy it. Really? You know, I'm, I'm a 21st century man. These were primitive people. I got a, a level of education. You know, they, they could believe this idea of the divine becoming human, but I'm a contemporary, modern, suburban, sophisticated person with a dish for a TV. You know? Uh, there, there are far too many intellectual and cultural barriers for me to accept God becoming divine. Really? 
you got far more intellectual and cultural barriers than a first century Jew or a first century Gentile. Really? Mark was a first century Jew. All right? They had far more intellectual and cultural barriers than we do. You couldn't even say the name Yahweh. You couldn't even write the name Yahweh. It's the same in Orthodox Judaism even today. The idea that God would become a human being was absolutely, utterly opposed to everything that a first century ancient would have believed. They would have railed against it in their culture and their intellect. Their barriers were far greater than ours. And yet, they came to have their barriers shattered. What were they? Well, to start, they look at all the meaning of what it means when you look at Jesus, the King who has come. That's who he is. That's what Mark is saying. This King has come, and when you trust him, not intellectual assent, but you trust and you place your whole trust in this act, over and above just coming to church every Sunday and saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth type of faith. Oh, I love the creed. You guys know that. But you can go through the motions if you don't watch it. I mean, if you really take this truth into the center of your being and let it catch fire there, it will change everything. The way you live and move and have your being. How? First, it changes the engine of your heart. And what I mean by that is your, your, what moves you? What gets you? What's your passion that gets you up out of bed in the morning? The reality is, for most of humanity, their motivational drive is fear. Fear of your boss. <laughs> fear of, of not meeting others' expectations. Fear of not living up to those expectations. Fear of, of not doing what I'm supposed to do according to me, all right? The reality is, it's a fear that will drive us. And it, world religions encourage such fear. Because you have the divine, here's how you reach him. And so you do or don't do all the things that can reach up to them, and you have no assurance whatsoever that you've actually made it. And so the reality is, yeah, Buddhism says the Eightfold Path. Islam says the Five Pillars. Judaism says the Ten Commandments. But they all increase the fear. Because you have no certainty. And you don't want to lose the divine. You don't want to miss the divine. You don't want to fall short of it. So it's fear that drives it to you. But Christianity comes along and says, no, what drives me as a follower of Jesus Christ is the love that I have because what he's done for me. And therefore, that's my motivation for getting up tomorrow. That's my motivation for doing excellent in my work. That's my motivation for being a blessing to my neighbors and my coworkers. Because God has become flesh, the incarnation means that God has come to us and has given himself to us. And we can live lives of great gratitude and joy and love, not out of fear. So I want us to first think, that's the first thing that this belief in the incarnation does. And we can trust this coming king. Secondly, it's a tremendous resource for dealing with our suffering. I want you to imagine if you're really going through a tough time, and you go to someone, 
and you pour out your heart, and they respond to you, okay, I hear you. Now do this, and don't do that, and do this, and don't do that. You know what you should be doing. That's not very consoling, is it? Right? But if you pour out your heart about what's wrong with you to another person, and they say to you, guess what? I know exactly what you're going through. And as a matter of fact, let me tell you my story. I've been through even worse. I'll bet you'll realize that's what I need. I need that type of consolation. And so therefore, what happens is Jesus comes along and because he's been through all that. There's no worldly philosophy or religion that has been through anything more intensely than Christ has. Once in royal David's city, that great Christmas hymn has this line in it. He was given to pay our ransom by his blood we are set free. Suffered he for our transgressions, Lamb of God upon the tree. Then he rose up from the grave, risen king with power to save. Isn't that beautiful? You know, the new stuff just, just doesn't compare. Right? No other religion or worldview even claims their God has wounds. Ours does. And therefore, it's a great motivation to minister to those who are suffering and hurting and whose, whose body is failing them. Thirdly, the incarnation becoming flesh in Jesus Christ is a tremendous motivation for mercy and justice. Why? Well, we've actually talked a lot about this over the past few weeks. You know, when you look at it, Jesus was given a material body, and it was considered good. When he died, he was risen. He, he was raised physically, because the incarnation and the resurrection mean God invented us both body and soul, and God is going to redeem both body and soul. And the purpose of our salvation in Christianity is not escape, but redemption of the physical world and the renewal and healing of our physical world. Last week we discussed the beautiful reality of one day this thing's all going to be changed when our Lord comes back and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. That's where we're headed. Therefore, not only salvation of the soul and the forgiveness of sin are what we're about, but we're about fighting disease and poverty and justice is just as much on the salvation plan of our God. So when Mark starts off his gospel with this prophecy of Isaiah, he's rooting it in the ancient hope of the Israel who one day will come and tear down every mountain and barrier and raise up every canyon and heal the world of its disease and brokenness. And what Mark is saying is that king has come. And those three things happen from a person who trusts in that. Secondly, we discover how we meet him. Well, we meet him in the wilderness. The whole theme of this chapter is if you're going to meet this king, you've got to go out into the wilderness. And the problem that we have with the term wilderness, we think of North American forest. You know, you go for a hike in the forest and you see the chipmunks and the cardinals and the sparrows and they're singing wonderfully and Bambi might be going through the meadow. Don't go in the meadow, Bambi, especially this time of year. Right? Right? We think North American wilderness. This is not North American wilderness that the Bible's talking about. It's talking about the Judean wilderness, a place in Israel where things don't grow. There is no water. 
it's absolutely barren. It's a place of terrible loneliness, and it can't support a community nor a life. And what's important about John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness is because it's just one of the themes of the Bible. Where, where did God's people coming out of Egypt meet God? In the wilderness. Okay? And they were made the people of God, in principle, by 40 years wandering in the? Right. Why is the wilderness generally the place where you meet God? Because in the wilderness, it's the place where you can't stay alive without God's intervention. There's no water. Any food you have is going to get moldy real fast, unless God gives you manna. Now, in the wilderness, Israel learned that, we all have to learn it, that God is not some kind of spiritual appendage. As a Christian, we must be totally, 100% dependent upon the Lord in every part of our lives. Okay, well, what does this have to do with us? Just as in a literal desert, you come out to find all the wells and the water go dry, but God's and all the bread molds except God's. So in our lives, we will only meet God when we go through our own personal wilderness experiences. It's when something you've looked to as your real hope. Oh, you may believe in God, you may believe in Christianity, but the real hope of your life, the real well, the real bread, the real thing that keeps you alive, the real spiritual life, your real Savior, your real bread and drink that runs out is my kids better be successful or I'm a failure as a parent. Or I have to reach a certain income level. I have to have a certain amount of material. I have to have a certain wardrobe. I have to have a certain education. Just fill in that blank, right? And what Mark is trying to tell us through the ministry of John the Baptist is they're all false satisfactions. They don't last. C.S. Lewis said it beautiful. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning ever will really satisfy. I'm not speaking about what ordinarily would be called unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm talking about the very best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that always fades away in the reality. That spouse may be a great spouse. The scenery may be excellent. It has turned out to be a pretty good job. What we are really looking for, we discover, has evaded us. We know that, don't we? Here's what I think it means to really find and meet the king. It's to discover that all those things, my career, it's not my family, not my looks, not my friends, not my achievements, not the money, not the fact that I have a great wife or husband, it's not my great kids, none of those things will ever truly satisfy me. It's when I place my trust in this Lord Jesus Christ alone. Because until I do, every well will run dry. Every bread will go moldy. 
It's coming to the place that I realize I need God or I will die. Then and only then, when we experience that, can we meet him as our king. And it's fascinating here because they're going out into the wilderness where you can't find water or bread or anything out there. And you're being baptized by this wild-looking dude in the wilderness. And you think, well, what's the big deal about being baptized? Well, in ancient Judaism, no one ever baptized you. You baptized yourself. You went, you went and did ritual cleansing as you went to the temple if you're a good Jew. And you washed yourself. Nobody did that for you. And if you're a Gentile dog, you had to dip under completely buck naked. Boom, get in there because you've got to really get clean. And then you're not even allowed in the temple. You can stay in the court of Gentiles. Okay? And what John the Baptist is saying, I don't care who you are. You come into the wilderness. I don't care if you're a Bible scholar or a prostitute. You need this washing. You need it from somebody else. And what this means for us driving this home is that as our well run dry, those things that we thought would satisfy us, the great school we went to, our financial reversals, whatever has happened that we recognize is not going to last us, we have to come to that place that says, I'm empty and I need something. Because what typically happens, people come to a service like this and they say, okay, I'll get it. I'll start to come to church more often. You know? So you start coming here. And that's good. But, all right, then I'll start to read more the Bible more. And that's good. But then I'm going to, you know, really clean up my life. And and I I won't cheat on my income taxes. (laughs) Don't you see what you're doing? You become religious. And John the Baptist is saying you're just self-saving. No. You still need full immersion by someone else, not yourself. Nathan Cole, who was a Connecticut farmer, came to faith through the ministry of George Whitfield, the great British Anglican minister, came in a great revival. The Second Great Awakening was started by him in New England. In 1740, this, this, this farmer in the American wilderness came to hear George Whitfield preach, and he said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. You see, he went to the wilderness. He saw his foundation wasn't solid, and he met the king, and he surrendered to him. That's what we have to do. The king has come. We meet him in our wilderness. And last, we discover where he's going. Because this king is embracing a cross. When you look at the word, it says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay? The word for paths or road or highway, some translations, they're interchangeable there. Ancient people hearing this prophecy immediately would know what they're talking about. Because this is a radical construction effort. Because every time the king was coming to your city, you had to pave it down. And they didn't have caterpillar tractors and bulldozers back then. You know what they had? Slaves. And a lot of them. 
and a lot of them would die during this project. It was hard work, and it was oppressive. And they would hear Isaiah profess this. And we think, wow, this, if Jesus is going to be a king, this is just going to be oppressive. It doesn't sound much fun to me, but actually the Greek word that's being used here is hados, prepare the way of the Lord is the word hadas. And every other time in Mark, he uses that word. It's on the road to the cross. See, Jesus is coming, ladies and gentlemen, not to ascend a throne, but to ascend a cross for each and every one of us. It's the king's cross. And Mark is saying that the kingliness and greatness of Jesus Christ, rather than to go to the throne, he went to a cross, which is the ultimate wilderness. Or put it like this, Jesus Christ went to the ultimate wilderness with, with a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. The thirst, experiencing great thirst, the ultimate forsakenness. He went into the wilderness to get and lost God so that we can go into our little wilderness and find him. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that we can, have, by grace, have a relationship with God. And what that means is Jesus Christ's reign in our lives is not oppressive because he's a servant king, not an oppressive king, because he brings salvation by grace. Therefore, it's not enslavement. It's freedom. It's liberation. And that changes the engine of my heart, does it not? Doesn't that make you want to live for him? And what's our response to this on the second day of Advent? Because so many people, they hear this, and they go, well, I don't want to take this thing too seriously. I want to I be a rational, reasonable person. Nobody responded to Jesus that way. Ever. I encourage you to read John Stott's Basic Christianity as a chapter on people's reactions to Jesus. You know what Stott said? He said, look, there's three ways to respond to Jesus of Nazareth, and they're all extreme. He wrote this in the mid-20th century. Don't say, I'm trying to be reasonable about it. You can't. You either hate him, and you want to kill him, or you're going to run away, which is what most people really do, or you embrace him and you worship him as Lord. There's only three types of honest reactions we can have to this Jesus Christ. Not a rational, reasonable response. That's basically running away really lamely, if you <laughs> ask my opinion. That's all it can be. No one ever responded to a sermon of Jesus like some of your friends you visited here, and I'm shaking hands as they're going out the door, and they say, Nice sermon, preacher. Maybe I'll come back next year. You know? I've had to, yeah, that was a good message. That was great. Good job. No one ever said that to Jesus. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. And he was either, you run away from him, you want to kill him, or you embrace him. Do you know this real Jesus? Because when we do, it's mind-blowing and beautiful. May I suggest that's our Advent this year as we're coming to worship at Christmas. 
that this king has come. Got to go into the wilderness. Let's do it, because we got to meet him there. Let him have his way with us, because this king ascended a cross for us, not a throne. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for helping us to see the reality of who your Son, Jesus Christ, is. And Lord, we ask that as we continue to walk this Advent season, approaching the Christmas season, that you would show us in an increasing fashion who your Son really is this morning, as revealed in the Scripture. And that we would truly prepare for his arrival as well. Give each and every one of us, as we prayed in the colic this morning, a desire to read Mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word. And that that word would shape us as we seek the truth of who he truly is. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.